Now that Gulfstream Park West is ready to be made into a shipping warehouse, what is the future for racing in South Florida? We'll talk with longtime area trainer Eddie Plesa about that. Plus, if there was a fairly simple rule you could enact to lower the fatality rate for racehorses, would you do it? Not everyone would. We'll examine the issue of voided claims on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. But when you do write a review, don't put any number in your review that's higher than six. If you do, the rocket scientists at America's Best Racing won't understand. You see, they have six finalists in the best podcast category of their fan choice awards. Since we're not among them, it shows that those folks can only count to six. Now that Gulfstream Park West, the track most of us knew as Calder Racecourse, has run its final race and will soon be made into a shipping warehouse, where does the sport in South Florida go from here? For a little while, no one will notice any difference. The so-called championship meet, basically the four months when the big eastern horsemen and their big stakes horses spend the winter, is beginning at Gulfstream Park. Even through the spring and summer, when incredibly Gulfstream continues to race with practically no drop-off in handle, it will still seem like business as usual. But conventional wisdom says you can't run 12 months without a break on the turf course. So what happens during October and November, when, for the last six years anyway, the action shifted nine and a half miles to the west to the now-shuttered Calder, or Gulfstream Park West? For some perspective on where the sport is and where it's headed in South Florida, there's no one more qualified for us to welcome in than the trainer whose 2,400 wins have come almost exclusively in the area, second-generation horseman Eddie Plesa Jr., who is, for what it's worth now, a member of the Calder Hall of Fame. Eddie Plesa joins us for the first time here on In the Gate. Aside from training the winner of that final race at Calder, Gulfstream Park West, and no other trainer would have been more appropriate, what was running through your head knowing that that was it for the track for good? Well, it's a hard thing. I mean, you don't think about it until it actually happens. I did become emotional after the fact, and certainly part of it was that I was able to win the last race there. Trying to thread the needle inside. Here's Cole Bros trying to take on Diligent, who swept to the front. Down the center in Karamojo. Widest of all, that's on duty. Inside the final 16th. And up front, it's now Diligent who strides forward to take the lead. Diligent is clear as they come to the wire. It's Diligent in front. It was just something that, for whatever reason, fell upon me. And I'm very grateful for it. You know, you look back from a historical standpoint and you say to yourself, this is an entity that's been a very important part of your life for 50 years. The last six or seven, you know, haven't been great. Certainly, it's 
well documented why uh, Churchill Downs decided to go in a different direction as they have so many times with so many other properties that they own. For me, being a part of Calder from the very, very beginning, I mentioned before my father was the second person to come through the gate at Calder when horses were first arriving at that racetrack. It was something new. It was summer racing, which we've never had. A lot of things came to light along with summer racing that uh, horse racing had never experienced. For instance, horses that might have become non-sweaters. That was one thing that came up. They quit sweating on you. They just, they didn't sweat. Your body is built for a cooling off system that you perspire. Horses perspire. You see them after a race. But what we found with, a, again, a very small number of horses, some horses all of a sudden had that. They didn't, they quit sweating. A lot of things were tried to no success. Different, different home remedies and people put air conditioning in a horse's stall to keep them cool. All kinds of things where the bottom line was, it seemed to be when you have humidity, like we have down here, it's a tropical humidity, for an extended period of time, some horses' bodies break down and they quit sweating. Does, is it, is it uh, a danger to their health that they're going to die? No. But are they going to be the athletes that they're supposed to be? No, they, they, they can't. I mean, they can't sustain themselves not sweating from an aspect of athletics. So that was one thing that we saw. But again, when you look back at Calder race course and see what it produced, whether it be horses, horsemen, jockeys, it would be hard. It's hard for me to think of other places that, you know, produced what we did. And we were called the race course is a landlocked place. It's like being on an island. The closest racing to Calder Racecourse in the summertime would be Maryland. You know, you just don't put throw a horse on a van and send him to Maryland to race uh, the next day. You know, there's a lot of planning and things going in, into effect that way. So a lot of things are different about Calder as opposed to racing in the Northeast and other places. So, again, Calder far succeeded in doing better than maybe they should have. It was a racetrack that was certainly two-year-old oriented. Uh, without the two-year-old racing, they would have had a hard time making it just because the numbers of older horses to come down and try it in, in South Florida at that time just didn't exist. So being close to Ocala, great breeding area, we had access to two-year-olds. And then you look at some of the outfits that came down here and sent horses down here that were really Florida, uh, Ocala-based owners, whether it be Mangurian, who, I mean, it's hard to say how, how big an impact he had in horse racing here. Uh, Fred Hooper, another one who was instrumental down here. Tartan Farms, Francis Ginter, 
you know, I'm naming a lot of names that a lot of people that have been in racing 10 or 20 years might not recognize. But when you go back 40, 50, 30, 60 years ago, these were the who's who of um, breeding. And right now, we don't have people like that in our industry. So it's all part of the makeup of what Calder was and what we lost. I'm so glad I got to meet John Nayrit of Tartan Farms late in his life, but nonetheless, to just absorb any of his wisdom was a real treat. Now, there can't be anyone more clued in to what's going on in South Florida than you are. What have you heard about whether Gulfstream will apply to run all year, whether Hialeah fills in that void, or whether a hole in the schedule will remain? Well, I think... What have I heard? Uh, you know, there's not a lot is being said. You know, it seems to be Stronic and Gulfstream's game right now. At one time, for a very short period of time, there was four major racetracks down here. You had Tropical Park, you had Gulfstream, you had Hialeah, and then Calder came into existence. The birth of Calder was kind of the end of Tropical Park, because Mr. McKnight ended up owning Tropical Park, I believe, and decided he wasn't going to have racing down there. He was putting all his energy into Calder Racecourse. So you had the three racetracks. What's going to happen? I mean, just if you logically think about it, this is what I see. You see one racetrack in existence operating, which is Gulfstream. You see another racetrack that has just ceased operation and has no plan to keep the racetrack surface or the remaining stalls there, which is called a race course, Gulfstream Park West, owned by Churchill Downs. So that's not in consideration. You do have a racetrack, Hialeah, that there is a racetrack surface there. There is a turf course there. What kind of shape are they in right now? I don't know. I haven't been there personally. I will tell you historically, Hialeah had a great surface, had a great turf course. But again, are they going to be part of this? I don't know. The one thing that horse racing lacks, and this will be an example, is uh, is cooperation amongst entities. There is no cooperation. They've never been cooperative, cooperative with each other to the detriment of the business. So do I see something coming where there's going to be something between Gulfstream and Hialeah to have a race meet there? I would think it would, it, it, it could work. I mean, they have some problems. I mean, they certainly don't have any barns there, but can that be solved? Yeah, they can put temporary barns there. I mean, if you're going to ship horses in there to race like we did at, at Calder, that's not unsurmountable. So then you look at it. Can Gulfstream run 12 months a year? I question whether they can. I will tell you every roadblock that's been put up in front of Gulfstream Park, Stronic, at one time Timmy Ritvo, now you have Billy Badgett and Mike Lakow, who are at the forefront, the people that we see from the, from the backside of a racetrack, they've seemed to come up with solutions to every problem. 
Again, one glaring example is we've been racing all through this pandemic. They've gone above and beyond, put all kinds of protocols in. What are they going to do? Can you run on a turf course as often as we've been running on a turf course for 12 months a year? I find it hard to believe that that can take place. So what's going to happen? Can they close down for two or three months? Hard thing to do. You know, people who own horses, it costs money to maintain a horse, whether the horse is racing or not. If you take away 60 days of racing, two months of racing, that's a, that's a big hardship for those people. It's a hardship for a trainer. It's a hardship for the people that work in the barn area. So do you cut it down to a point where maybe you're only going to run for four or five months and then close down for four or five months? I don't know. I mean, they've got a lot of decisions to make. And I, and, and I don't see a lot of solutions. Have you spoken with Steve Brunetti, the son of the late Hialeah Park owner John Brunetti, about reviving racing there? Have I personally? No. No, I haven't. I mean, you know, do I know Steve to see him and say hello to? I do. Is he in any proximity to any place that I'm at? No, he's not. You don't see him at Gulfstream. So, I mean, not that you see anybody at Gulfstream now because of the conditions, but you know, those are questions that, you know, should be asked of him. I don't know if he has a desire. It's certainly at one time, it sounded like John did. But, you know, again, to get together and say to themselves, listen, we have a problem here in racing. Let's put our heads together and solve this. You know, one of the big problems here in the state of Florida is there's no racing commission. There, there, nobody does anything. When when racing was in its heyday, you had a racing commission that allotted the dates. You know, historically, Hialeah had the, the best dates, and then Gulfstream wanted them. So they went to court, and they went to the racing commission, and they, they had a process where Hialeah would have it for a year, then Gulfstream would have it for a year, and they switched back and forth. Hialeah wasn't happy about it. And maybe they shouldn't have been, and I understand that. But Gulfstream thought to themselves, we deserve it. And I, I understand their side of the coin, too. So, again, is there anybody outside of us within the industry that can have people come to a table? No, there isn't. I don't think horse racing has the um, clout that we once did. I mean, now that you have casinos coming into play, the state's only concerned with one thing, revenue, revenue, revenue. They don't consider a a horse, a billion-dollar horse industry, and there's nobody that's acting on our behalf. So, you know, can the highly people get together with the Gulfstream people and come up with a solution that's best for all of horse racing? I don't know. It, it, it seems to be a hard thing to do. And it's just not on those people. It's on the whole industry. I don't care if you're in the Northeast and it's Mammoth Park and parks trying to work something out, which they tried doing at one time and they weren't successful. I mean, it just doesn't seem to work. It just defies logic to me, but I'm just a horse trainer. Well, you say you haven't been to Hialeah in a while, but I have. I was there a couple of years ago to see those ridiculous one-on-one hundred-yard match races that the flimsy racing commission of which you just spoke authorizes 
The horses come from who knows where, ridden by who knows whom, but the exercise allows Hialeah to say they've run live racing, and running live racing allows them to keep their casino. What sense do you get, though, that because they have to still couple racing with gaming, that perhaps there is a path to running real thoroughbreds at Hialeah again? I, I don't see it in all honesty. Hialeah brought in quarter horses. They were part of the American Quarter Horse Organization. And then Hialeah said, from what I understand, why are we paying all this money out in purses when nobody's really betting on it? And then decided to form their own organization, which has trickled down to just what you've said. I'm aware of what you're saying. Two horses go on a racetrack. There's no starting gate involved two people on those horses and they ask them to run a short distance and the state of Florida takes that as adequate enough to say that they're fulfilling their obligation. When you and I and anybody with one-tenth of a brain would see this and say, are you kidding me? But that's the state of Florida. It's not only there, it's other places. I mean, you know, again, you, you have a place in Ocala they have a racetrack. They have a small grandstand. Could you have horse racing in, in Ocala? Would they welcome it? Probably. Is it a longer distance than certainly South Florida? Of course it is. Yeah, but Ocala's not on the National Register of Historic Places, which Hialeah is. Uh, you're a thousand percent right, but I'm not talking about historically things. I'm talking about having racing. So... You know, would we like to see it? Yes. Do they have the facilities? Yes. Do they have the desire? That's the big question mark. In my mind, and I would say just about anybody's mind, that's in this business. Trainer Eddie Plesa joining us here on In the Gate. What a pleasure. Now, you made reference to the stabling situation. I mean, what is going to happen to all of the horses that have been stabled at Calder? Well, I, from what I understand, they have a few more months there, and then they're going to have to get out. Probably coincides with the end of the Gulfstream Park Championship meet. There is a training facility in Boynton Beach that's owned by the Stronic Group that has stabling for a number of horses, probably every bit as many as, as we have at Gulfstream. Those people will have to go up there, Palmettos. It's a beautiful facility. I've been stabled there. It's state-of-the-art facility, no question about it. They have a mile and an eighth racetrack like we do at Gulfstream. They have a beautiful turf course. You know, so... That's where they will go. Some people ask the question, will there ever be racing at Palmetto's? From my understanding, if you looked at the facility, you would say this facility was built to have live racing. If you haven't been to Palmetto's, you need to go. You need to Google it. You will see an absolutely gorgeous place. No question about it. Could be as nice as any racetrack. Where the problem lies, again, as I understand it is, it's 
in a area that's close to um, the dog track in Palm Beach, which is owned by the Roonies. There is a rule that you cannot run two racetracks within so many, two paramutual facilities with X amount of miles. And from what I understand, it's A, within the miles, they would have to get an okay from those people. And the second thing, and maybe more important, is when Palmetto's was built, to get the okay to build the place, they had to agree, meaning the Stronic Group, that they would never have live racing there. And I think part of it is is where it's located. It's located in an area that is, they have million-dollar homes all around there. So it, it's like in the middle of all these communities is a training facility that they tolerate and people are there but I don't know that they're going to want live racing there where it could create traffic and other other issues for the, that particular area. And again, I'm under the understanding that there was an agreement signed which allowed them to build the place that they would never have live racing there. But again, if you look at the facility, you'd say the only thing they're missing is a grandstand and clubhouse. I'm not saying this to be political, but... As I understand it, the city of Palm Beach is also about to potentially embark on a similar lawsuit involving Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago that the Mar-a-Lago facility, where he is presumed to want to retire to when he leaves the White House, there's an agreement that he signed with them that... No one can live at Mar-a-Lago for more than seven days at a time and more than 21 days a year, and that they might make him have to take out the helipad that he has now from Marine One. And again, I'm not saying this to be political, only that the city may be embroiled in a much larger, similar type battle. Are they really going to want to then take on one regarding Palm Beach's horse racing facility as well? Well, it's a different city. It's Boynton Beach. It's not Palm Beach. Probably the same county, Palm Beach County. But I don't see that even entering the picture that they don't want to embark on something. Uh, I just I just say to myself, he signed an agreement, I guess, from the city of Boynton Beach to allow them to build that. I would say they were the ones that okayed it. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't see them having racing. That would be an easy solution. That would be the easiest solution. That would be the most sensible solution, but you have the people that own the dog track, which are the Roonies. They're a very political, uh, strong family. You know, they own the Pittsburgh Steelers. They own the, I don't know what they own. They own a lot of stuff. So they're, I mean, they're political. They have a lot of political clout here. Isn't dog racing outlawed in Florida? Well, they have the they have their facility there. I'm sure that they have simulcasting there. Are dogs racing there? No, dog racing is is not. But it was originally a dog track. 
Let's end with something a little happier. <laughs> a number of milestones happened at Calder. Sure. <laughs> Jockey Eddie Castro's nine wins in sure. one day in 2005. The Green Monkey being sold there for the ridiculous world record price of $16 million in 2006. What are your favorite memories of being at that track? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many. I mean, some of them are personal. Some of them aren't. My memory is an all-encompassing memory of a, a place that it's like growing up in a small town that you knew everybody and you saw people have success and you were happy for them. And then all of a sudden something happened and that happiness just ended. I, I could tell you best of the rest, winning multiple stake races there for long time clients that I trained for probably close to 35 years. You know, I could tell you having a horse called my Nicole who ended up, I bought her for somebody and she won stake races. And then she became the mother of a horse called three ring who won, you know, grade one stake race. This is for Barry Schwartz and, you know, swept uh, the stallion stakes, you know, to winning a stake race there. You know, everything was, the whole meet was about the stallion stakes. That was two-year-olds, Florida breads. We all went to the sales to buy that horse. And that's what we looked forward to. Everything else just complemented that. So, you know, winning stallion stakes races there, I mean, it's just a lot, a lot of, they were all good memories up until Churchill Downs took over, in all honesty. And I don't, I'm not looking to be political either. But I got to tell you, they did a horrible job. If anybody, if everybody, anybody knew what was going to be the the end result of Churchill Downs taking that place over, I'm sure it would have never been sold to Churchill Downs. Somebody else would have come to the forefront. Barry Schwartz tried buying the racetrack. After the article came out about the, the closing of Calder, you know, I had horses for Barry Schwartz for a long, long time. And for those who don't know who Barry Schwartz is, Barry Schwartz was co-owner of Calvin Klein. You know, he's a big proponent of horse racing. He still has horses. And he called me up and we talked about it. And his comment to me was, geez, Eddie, what do you think would have happened if I would have gotten that racetrack? Well, it would have been totally different. They'd probably still be racing there. And life would be a lot easier on a lot of people. So I didn't answer your question directly. I certainly answered it indirectly because I got a lot of thoughts about the place. But it was just, like I said, for those who enjoyed high school and loved being in high school for whatever reason, it was the same feeling. And to see those, those times go, you get older and things pass, but you look back and you say to yourself, well, I had a good time in high school. I met a lot of good people, a lot of fun. That's what Calder was for a lot of us. And as I have said to my high school son, as I say to you as well, don't ever apologize for being who you are. Thank you so much, Eddie, please. This has been a pleasure. I could do this all day long. Well, listen, take care. I'm, I'm glad to see that you took interest in it, and I appreciate what you're doing for uh, horse racing. If you could implement a rule that would almost instantly lower the fatality rate for racehorses, would you do it? Not everyone would. We'll examine the issue of voided claims when the In the Gate podcast continues. 
Welcome back to In the Gate. A lot has happened in the area of equine safety in the past year and a half, ever since the much-publicized spike in fatalities at Santa Anita in the spring of 2019. Racing services have been re-examined, medical equipment has been upgraded, and there might soon be a federal board to administer medication use in racehorses, all in the name of safety. One practice that has not gotten a whole lot of attention but is making a difference in saving horses' lives is what's called the voided claim rule. Typically, in a claiming race, you would put in a claim on a horse before the race is run. The race happens, the old owner keeps any winnings from that race, but then the horse exits the track and goes to the barn of your trainer instead of the previous trainer. So what's the problem? Well, if the horse is claimed and then suffers a catastrophic injury in that same race, it's not the old trainer's problem anymore. Even if the horse dies during that race, the claiming price must be paid by the new owner to the old owner. The process certainly tempts trainers to enter their horses in these races knowing that the horses have potentially catastrophic problems. A rule that voids the claim of a horse in this kind of situation has made a difference in the equine fatality rate, according to a study presented this year by Dr. Tim Parkin, who for several recent years was a renowned professor of clinical equine sciences at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Dr. Parkin now runs the Department of Veterinary Epidemiology at the University of Bristol in the UK. Dr. Parkin reports that in states here in this country that have this rule in place, the fatality rate is 1.6 per thousand starts. That number rises to 2.2 per thousand starts in states that don't have avoided claim rule. Dr. Parkin calls that difference significant in keeping unfit horses off the track. We start our discussion on the issue of voided claims with the author of that study, Dr. Tim Parkin, here on In the Gate. You said that the difference between 1.6 and 2.2 fatalities per thousand is statistically significant. How significant is it? Well, I mean, it's pretty important. I mean, it's a little bit of an arbitrary figure to look at, but if you think about it, then essentially for every thousand horses that are racing, then actually you get essentially half the horse fewer dying. So in other words, if you've got, you know, 2,000 horses racing, then that's one fewer horse dying when you do have a void claiming rule in place than if you wouldn't have that. So thankfully, what we're talking about here is still, thankfully, a relatively rare outcome if we're talking fatality on the race course. But all these little incremental advances we make may have a one or 2% difference, but put them all together. And it's like, you know, you talked a lot about Olympics and cycling. You put all those 1% increments together and suddenly you start making quite a significant impact on the number of horses that are dying on the track. I mean, over the time that we've been working with the Jockey Club and everything that's gone on, we've seen something like a 25% reduction in the risk of fatal injury in racing in North America since 2009 to 2019. And that equates to about 150 fewer horses dying on the race course than there would have been if the rates had stayed the same uh, in 2019 compared to 2009. So I think it's a pretty significant impact, really. So am I to gather that your study goes back to 2009 with the 1.6 and 2.2? And are those numbers just in the United States or elsewhere as well? No, those are just in the United States. But essentially, what we're talking about is those tracks all the way back to 2009 that have had a change of void claim rule over that period. And essentially, what we looked at was what was the rate 
of fatal injury prior to an introduction of the void claim rule? And then what was the rate of fatal injury post the introduction of the void claim rule? And you see quite a significant drop. Now, the drop has been a little bit up and down. But overall, if you take a long enough period, say the 10 years that we're talking about or 11 years we're talking about inclusive, then you start to see a reasonable trend that is clearly significant. So, uh, yeah, all the data is all the way back to 2009. Just a bit backing up, uh, in terms of the Equine Injury Database, Tracks volunteer their data for that database. And I think if we ask Kristen uh, Werner at the Jockey Club now, uh, we have something like 96 or 97% of all starts in the states now volunteer their data into the EID. So it's almost a full complement, full cohort of all the tracks contributing data to the Equine Injury Database, which is Quite remarkable, considering where they came from sort of 10 years ago. In 2012, California implemented a voided claim rule. I believe they were the first state to do it, and it took them five years to debate it and finally get it done. According to Joe Gorachek, the former Indiana Racing Commissioner Executive Director, before the rule, 15% of horses claimed in California would never run again. After the rule, the percentage dropped to three and a half. What do you make of those numbers? Frankly, I'm, I mean, that's quite startling quite, and not unsurprising. I think it's, you know, it's just a, a demonstration of the fact that the void claim rule is there to try to prevent horses being claimed that really have no future in racing. And they probably end up potentially having a, a more prolonged rest or they leave racing bef- rather than being uh, thrown into a claiming race where they're picked up by someone else who essentially picks up a horse that maybe shouldn't be racing anymore and, and is just essentially just waiting for something catastrophic to happen. So I'm not surprised by those that pretty significant figures if you look at those. That's quite a significant drop in the uh, likelihood of a horse ending up injured, I think. Now, you reported there wasn't as big a drop in the fatality rate in maiden claiming races as for regular claiming races. Why is that? It's a good question, and I, I don't know. I think potentially uh, it's just a combination of the fact that maybe those in the claiming races are slightly older horses. So there's a bigger disparity or a bigger gain to be had in those horses. They are generally higher risk races just slightly. So compared to maiden claiming races. So if you think about it, if you're starting from a higher base uh, where the risk is slightly higher in a claiming race and you're looking to put an intervention in place, then you have somewhere a little bit further to go. So you have a bigger gain to make. If you're starting in a maiden claiming race where the risk is lower already anyway, you don't have as much gain to make. So that's probably what I think we're seeing in that particular example there. If you look at the data, then essentially there was a bigger disparity pre-void claim rule uh, between maiden claiming and claiming races. When you introduce the claiming race, the void claim rule for claiming races and maiden claiming races, then essentially the difference was much, much less. And you actually ended up with comparisons that were very, very similar for both of those situations. So I think it's purely a fact that in claiming races, the baseline risk without a void claim rule is actually much higher. So you've got much further to go. The other part of the voided claim rule is that the horse must not be put on the vets list following the race. I assume that means the horse has to pass a drug test. We saw in the case of Justify how long it took for the drug testing to happen, be made public, be sample tests, etc. So how would the vets list thing work in the case of voiding a claim? 
It's a good question, and I'm not au fait with the exact details of all the different claim rules, but I think it's important to make the the statement that the void claim rule is not a void claim rule, is not a void claim rule, that they have lots of different subtleties in the way they are introduced. And actually, the, the thing that I'd like to get across is actually that, you know, the those that can be claimed for uh, fatality or being on the vets list were much more effective than those that were only able to be voided if you're a fatality only. So those that are kind of the more stringent void claim rules are much more impactful in terms of reducing the risk than those that are the less stringent void claim rules. So I'm unsure as to how exactly it would work with respect to drug testing, but I think the important message is that the more stringent you make your void claim rule, then actually the more effective it will be. Professor Tim Parkin at the University of Bristol in the UK, thank you so much. Stay safe. No problem. Oh, did we mention that not every state has a voided claim rule? As best we could tell, 11 states have it. New York, California, and Kentucky, Arkansas, the mid-Atlantic states of Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, but not Virginia, Minnesota, Iowa, New Mexico, and the state of Washington. The law is also on the book in Florida, but only for Gulfstream Park, not for Tampa Bay Downs or anywhere else. One state that does not have this rule on the books is Oklahoma. And to get some perspective, we're joined here on In the Gate by the executive director of the Oklahoma Horse Racing Commission, Kelly Cathy. In your time with the commission, sir, what debate has there been about a voided claim rule? Well, um, since I've been here, we ha- that discussion has not came up. Uh, we work as a committee of uh, four commissioners and our state veterinarian and myself and both horsemen's group. We race two breeds. We race quarter horse paints and apps for, and, and also thoroughbreds in two different meets. And our horsemen, we work with our horsemen on, you know, they request rules for us to review rules and everything. And, and that issue has never came up to us as, as far as an issue of, of the claiming rule or avoided claiming rule. We have uh, put more time and effort in ours as far as making sure our, our veterinarian is where we, we vet examine every horse in the morning before the races and putting our hands on these horses. Our vets have the thermal image machines that they cast on, you know, they screen for hot spots on these horses. Any questions or any concerns they may have, they'll talk to the trainer, they'll talk to the private veterinarians and maybe make them do x-rays or something if they see something when these horses are jogging. And, and that's, that's the way we've taken as far as keeping our injuries down. I know of one horse that was claimed, it was last year, that broke down after it was claimed, and, and that was a cause of an accident during the race. It, it clipped hills with another horse, and sadly it be euthanized. But I do not know that this occurs. I, I, that's the only case I know of in Oklahoma that, that has occurred off a claimed horse being injured and having to be put down. To what degree do you think that caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, is part of how the game should be played? (sighs) I don't think that, you know, it's fair to say buyer beware. I mean, I think it's part of the game of of, of good training. First of all, I don't think a good trainer sends a crippled horse out or an injured horse out. Uh, I, I know in that article it said something about, you know, it would keep a trainer from doing that. Sure, it would keep a trainer from doing that. 
but with your your veterinarians and in in the qualifications your veterinarians have or our veterinarians have in Oklahoma and in every jurisdiction does pre-race examinations and that that's the way that you know the boots on grounds is how I think you keep these uh, horses with problems from running I, I really don't know how to answer that question I mean I'm I'm not I'm not out here saying that I'm not saying that the commission, this commission would never, you know, if this was brought to our attention and had concerns about it was going on in Oklahoma, that, you know, we're always for the safety and welfare of the horses and doing whatever is best for them and the people involved in racing. Dr. Tim Parkin, who presented a study in conjunction with the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation, claims that the fatality rate for states that have avoided claim rule is 1.6 per thousand starts versus 2.2 for states without such a rule. When you read those numbers, and I know you didn't necessarily see the presentation, but when you see those numbers, what do you know of that study and what do you think? I'd had to dive into the study a little bit more. Uh, and again, that comes out of the equine injury database. He is not making any scientific numbers. Those are just numbers that he is analyzing. Right, right. And, and, and you know, if, 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 that's, if that's the truth, that's, everybody should be looking at the making claiming rules, I, I assume. And he calls those numbers, that difference, significant. I would say they're significant, yes. I am grateful for your time, sir. Stay safe. Thank you. Our thanks once again to Kelly Cathy, Tim Parkin, and Eddie Plisa. Bill Parcells, the Hall of Fame coach and erstwhile thoroughbred owner, insists that five minutes early means being on time. But honestly, for how many of you is showing up promptly to a meeting or appointment an uphill climb? In recent years, the listed post times at Gulfstream Park meant less than trying to pay at a register with wampum. Those races would go off so late they started accruing interest and overlap with other tracks races left gamblers numb. But on the same day in this crazy year with an NFL game on a Wednesday, it seems that Gulfstream got its act together. In letters bigger than an all-caps tweet, the simulcast graphic blared that to their post times all races will be tethered. You need something to cling to that restores your faith in society? I know, 2020 has left us in fear. But even more than a COVID vaccine, Gulfstream Park alone has shown us that we're in for a better year. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, with the exception of the astrophysicists at America's Best Racing, who for the second straight year have left us off their ballot for Best Podcast in the Fan Choice Awards. I'm sorry that they just don't know what they're missing. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.